Praise the Lord. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to end my series on the love of God, which it's like Jamie's song. You can't ever end this. You can't explain it all, and there's so much more to share. But let me just uh, catch you up in case you haven't made any of these meetings, or even if you've been here, sometimes people... uh, Don't put all of this together. I started talking about how important the love of God is. Ephesians chapter 3, if you really had a revelation of the love of God, you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. And since most of us aren't filled with the fullness of God, we aren't experiencing it and enjoying it. That means that we are short on our revelation of the love of God. Then I began to talk about things that hinder us understanding the love of God. One of the teachings in the body of Christ that I believe is the most damaging of everything in the body today is a wrong teaching on the sovereignty of God, where God is responsible for all the murder, the mayhem, the terrible things. God is punishing us and judging us, and God is about to destroy America if we don't repent. Those kind of teachings give a wrong impression about God. If you could attribute all of the terrible things that are said about God to me, and say that that's the way I was, and then you tell people that, boy, I'm your best friend, nobody would want to know you or me if I was guilty of all of those kind of things. And basically, that's what the church has been doing, is saying God's the one that kills people, makes them deformed, it's all His will, nothing happens without His approval, and and it turns people against God. And it'll even turn Christians against God. If you think God is the one who is causing the hurt and the heartache in your life, it's just not true. And then I talked about uh, last night. What did I talk about last night? I just went blank. Huh? Unconditional. That's right. You've got to understand that God's love is unconditional, that it's not based on your performance, that it's not according to something that you do. And if you tie God's love to your worth, then ultimately you aren't going to feel that God loves you because your own conscience will condemn you and let you know that you aren't worthy of love. And so that's what we talked about last night. Boy, that is a major, major, major thing. And then this morning I talked about spirit, soul, and body, how that the way that I understand that God loves me and the way that I was able to reconcile how a holy God could love an unholy me is when I got a revelation of who I was in Christ. And I tell you, that's my favorite thing to talk about. If you, if that, what I talked about this morning doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. That's the way I feel about it. I don't know how anybody, anybody could listen to that and not be turned on and excited and blessed. And I could talk about that for weeks and weeks and weeks. So there's a lot more I can say about that. What I want to do tonight is begin to start trying to answer some questions. If you've tracked with me on all of these things that I've said, that God's not the one who's punishing us and taking His wrath wrath out on us and all of these things, and if you are a new person and all of your sins are forgiven, and if God's love is unconditional, it's not tied to something, well then what about this? And I've had people already ask me about some examples in the Bible. What about God striking this person with leprosy? And what about the wrath and the judgment of God? And God saying, if you hearken diligently to observe and to do all of these commandments, then these blessings will come upon you. But if you don't hearken, then these curses will come upon you. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 1 and 2. And people ask me questions about that. In a nutshell, the answer to all of these things is that there is a different way that God dealt with people in the Old Testament than the way He deals with people in the New Testament. And I know that when I start to say something like this, there's some people that just automatically switch this off because they say, oh yeah, you're going to just discount anything you don't want in the Bible and say that's Old Covenant. And there's some people that will do that and use it as an excuse. But I'm going to go through some scriptures tonight and show you that there is a huge difference between the way God dealt with people in the Old Covenant versus the way He deals with people in the New Covenant. And it is true that God struck people with leprosy and did things. Let me just use this one illustration before I get into these scriptures. It's similar to when your children are growing up. You know what? You don't want to hurt your children. You don't want to hit your children. You don't want to do anything to hurt them. But children have a wrong nature on the inside of them. Have you ever noticed that? You don't have to teach your children to tell 
uh, a lie. That just seems to come automatically. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish and to steal from somebody else. That seems to come automatically. You have to teach them the right things to do, not the wrong things. And when they're young, you have to, uh, you can't reason things out with them because they aren't able to understand it. And if you wait until your children are teenagers or, you know, in their teens before you start trying to explain things to them because you just want to talk to them and reason things out, if that's the way you respond, that's the reason you have the terrible twos and when they're two years old is because they haven't been disciplined and trained in what they do. You can't wait until they're old enough to understand everything. You've got to start teaching them very young is what the scripture says. Chasing your son betimes, that means early, while there is still hope. After a period of time, there isn't hope. You've got to reach them when they're young. So how do you deal with a, you know, a young kid? If you tell them, don't go take that toy because if you take this toy, what you are doing is giving in to your selfish, fallen nature. And you are allowing Satan a stronghold in your life. And if you give Satan a stronghold in your life, Jesus said that the thief comes for no other purpose except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So what you're doing is establishing patterns that nobody's going to like you if you're selfish and if you are always a taker instead of a giver. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you get friends, they'll turn away from you and you get to be selfish. And you'll never be able to keep a job if it's all about you. You've got to learn to serve... And if you get married, you'll wind up, your mate will divorce you if you're selfishness because Proverbs 13.10 says only by pride comes contention. You know, if you try and tell all that to a one-year-old, they're just going to look at you like they don't get it. But you know what a one-year-old can understand? You do that again and I'm going to spank you. And they may not even know that there is a God or devil, heaven or hell but they understand that the next time that thought comes about go take this toy and I'm going to do something for myself, they'll remember that, you know, if I do that, I'm going to get a spanking. And you can get a child that doesn't understand spiritual things to do what's right because of fear of punishment. And you need to do that. You know, I have an example about my son Joshua when he was just about a year old and we were walking out on a country road and we walked these roads all of the time and it was late in the evening and uh, usually there's no cars out there and the grass was up, I don't know, three, four feet high and he was running down the road nearly as far as from me to the back of this room ahead of us and it was okay because nobody was ever out there. But all of a sudden, down this road, we saw a car coming. That road, car must have been going 60 miles an hour, and there was nowhere to go. It was a dead end. And this car was coming, and the car and Joshua were going to intersect. And he was far enough in front of us that I couldn't run and physically restrain him. But because we had taught him yes and no, and I mean, Joshua, if he was in mid-stride running, and if I said stop, he would stop, amen. I mean, he was disciplined, and when we told him no, he would stop out of a fear of getting a whipping. And because of that, here he was, and this car was coming, and he couldn't see it because of the weeds and stuff that were up higher than him. And I just yelled, and I said, Joshua, stop, and he stopped. And I mean, that car came by not more than just a foot or two from him. Saved his life because I taught him to obey just out of a fear of getting a spanking. But you know, now that he's, what is Joshua, 32, 33 years old? You know what? That's not the way I deal with Joshua. He's actually out on his own and I don't do any of those things. But I'm saying that... uh, You know what? You don't sit there and treat an adult that way. But what you want is for them now, it should be in his heart to do what's right and to do the thing that's good for him. But when they're young, you don't reason with them. You spank them. And if you're one of these that doesn't spank your kids, you're entitled to do it that way. I'm not going to tell you right or wrong, but I'm not going to agree with you or we'd both be wrong. Amen. (laughs) That's what the scripture says to do. And you are causing problems in your own children if you don't correct them. So it's similar. Before we got born again, it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because their foolishness, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Before people got born again, they didn't have the heart, the ears, 
to understand and receive spiritual truth. A natural man just can't understand God. God's ways are higher than the human natural ways. And so before salvation, before Jesus came, in a sense, God corrected people the way that we correct our children with punishment, with judgment. And you know what? Even a lost man can understand that. Don't tithe and I'll curse you with the curse. Step out of line and call fire down out of heaven like Elijah did in 2 Kings chapter 1. The wrath of God, smite them with the plague, send a death angel and kill them all. You know what? Even a lost man can understand that. And as harsh as it may sound, it was necessary because you can't just let the human race go for 4,000 years until Jesus come. If he hadn't have done something to restrain the amount of sin in the earth, and if the fear of God hadn't have been placed in the earth that caused people to withdraw from sin, there wouldn't have been a virgin left on the face of the earth for Jesus to have been born through. It would have corrupted the plan of God. And so God, under the old covenant, dealt with people in wrath and punishment and judgment. But Jesus totally changed everything. And the sad thing is most Christians don't know that this change has happened and we still expect God to be the harsh God of the Old Testament, not understanding why it happened in the first place and they're expecting this judgment. And again, if you don't, if you see God as operating with us the same way that He dealt with people in the Old Testament, I guarantee you, you aren't going to have a real good impression of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God because there was harshness in the Old Testament. And again, I've got an entire book on this, The True Nature of God. I've got a tape series on this. I've got a lot of teaching on this. It'll go into six or seven hours of what I'm going to talk about tonight. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we use this verse this morning in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us reconciled the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. The word reconcile means to bring back into harmony or fellowship, to make friendly again. There was an antagonistic relationship between God and man in the old covenant. I've also got a tape set that if you hadn't heard this, I consider this to be one of the most important things that I've ever taught is a teaching entitled, The War is Over. You need to get that and understand that in the Old Covenant, there was war between God and man. War was declared on sin. And there was this adversarial relationship between God and man. It's just replete throughout all of Scripture. I don't know how anybody can study Scripture and not see that. And some people translate that right into the New Testament and think that that's still the way that God is. But the war is over. That's what the angels were saying in Luke chapter 2 when they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man. They weren't announcing the end of war and the end of strife between men. That's not what happened because Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 10, well, right there in Luke chapter 12, where we were reading the offering thing, it goes on to say, don't think that I came to send peace on earth. I didn't come to send peace on earth, but a sword. From henceforth, there's going to be division in a family, two against three, the father against the mother and the parents against the children, etc. Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace among men. When the angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards man. That was saying God was ending the war. The battle was over. Now, how could a holy God end his war on sin? Because he put all of our sins into Jesus and put out all of his wrath and all of his punishment upon Jesus. And he punished Jesus to such an extent that there isn't any wrath left in God. He put all of his wrath upon Jesus and now the war is over. And because of Jesus, there's a new covenant and a new way of dealing with man. And this is what this is talking about, that he has already reconciled us unto God. We are now the friends of God. You know, in the Old Testament, you weren't called the friend of God. I think there was one person, Abraham, called the friend of God one time in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're all friends of God. Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know what his Lord does. I'm calling you friends. 
there is a brand new relationship. We're on a new level with God. And if you're trying to relate to God the way that Abraham did, the way that Elijah did, the way that David did, man, you're missing God. Those people, it says over in 2 Peter chapter 1, or 1st or 2nd Peter, it says that they longed for the day that you and I live in. They searched diligently, longing for these things. David said in Psalms chapter 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Because that wasn't him. He had sin imputed unto him, but he saw by prophecy that there was coming a day that there was going to be a sacrifice to end all sacrifices and that there would be people who God wouldn't impute sin unto. He was talking about us. We live in a different covenant than the Old Testament people. And yet most people are going to the Old Testament and they see the wrath and the punishment and the rejection of God and they translate that to themselves and think, Oh God, how could you love me after what I've done? It's because of Jesus. He's already reconciled us. In verse 19, it says, To wit, that's Old English for saying that is, or here's an explanation Look at this in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You know how God was able to reconcile, make us friendly, bring us back into harmony with God? He did it by not imputing our sins unto us. The word impute is an accounting term. It would be like, uh, you know, if you had um, one of these old accounts at the store and you went and bought something and say, just put that on my account. Another way of saying that would be impute that to me. God isn't imputing or recording our sins against us. Here's a a modern day uh, example of that. If you had a credit card, did you know that you could go buy something and you could put your credit card down And you aren't actually paying for it at that moment. But what you're doing is giving them your information and they impute that sale unto you. And then later they will send you a bill and you have to pay that bill, either a minimum payment or pay off the whole thing. But it's imputed unto you later. You don't pay for it right then. It's just imputed to you. That means it's put on your account. But what would happen if you went to pay for something And all of a sudden the person says, oh, you know what? I'm not even going to take your credit card. That would mean that they couldn't impute it unto you. It wouldn't get put on your account. Or here's actually a better illustration of what I'm talking about. What would happen if you bought something and you went to give them your credit card and have it imputed unto you and instead I step up and I say, no, here, use my credit card. And you have everything that you bought imputed unto me. Then, did you know if that happened, which is an exact illustration of what Jesus did, if they were to send you a bill and say, you know what, even though somebody else paid your bill, you need to know what it cost. Or if they gave you a service charge and said, even though somebody else paid, we're still going to charge you 10% or something. You know what? You would have right to go back and say, this is wrong. The debt was paid. Somebody else paid for my thing. You shouldn't even have it recorded. It would never go against your account. It wouldn't show on your credit. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus reconciled us unto God by taking our sins and putting all of your sins, everything that you've ever done on His account, all of your sin and my sin, the sin of the entire human race, was placed upon Jesus. And it was imputed unto Him. And now God would be unjust to charge Jesus for your sin and charge you for that sin. That would be like in court, double jeopardy. Man, your sins have already been paid for. Past, present, and even your future tense sins that you haven't committed yet. They've already been paid for. They were imputed unto Him. That's the way that God made us friendly is because He just wiped sin out. And let me just say something here. I'm not against anybody, but you know what? This is not the message that's being preached in the average church today. The average church is imputing sin unto you big time. Telling you that if you don't come to church, God won't bless you. If you don't tithe, God won't. God, you're cursed with the curse. Somebody says, but that's a scripture in Malachi chapter 3. Well, if you turned over to Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 and read that, it also says you're cursed with the curse not only if you don't tithe, but if you don't give offerings. 
Pastor Dean right down here told me that he's added it up and I think it was 33% or somewhere around there is the prescribed tithe and offerings that are given. So if you're going to believe Malachi chapter 3 that you're still living under that, unless you're giving 33%, you're cursed with the curse. You better crawl out from under that Old Testament law, amen. Under the new covenant, you aren't cursed with the curse. I think you're stupid if you don't give because of all of the things that I've been saying. It's, man, it's, it's to your benefit to give. You're stupid if you don't give. But God loves you, stupid, is what I'm saying, amen. He's not imputing it unto you. He's not holding it against you, amen. God put all of my sins, everything that I've ever done on Jesus and for me to go back under the old covenant and oh God, I've sinned. I know now why you aren't answering my prayers because I've got some sin in my life. To go back to Achan and talk about the accursed thing and somebody in the camp has sinned and that's why it's not working. All of those things happened and they were true, but those are Old Testament scriptures. Under the new covenant, I have been reconciled to God because God imputed my sins unto Jesus and He is not imputing them unto me. It would be unjust to impute a portion of my sin to Jesus and then I have to also bear a portion of it. It's not so. Man, Jesus paid it all or he paid nothing at all. He paid it all. This is an amazing statement that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. There's so many examples of that. Jesus took the woman taken in the very act of adultery and he said that she had sinned. He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say that she hadn't sinned, but he didn't punish her for her sin. You know why? Because he had already put that on his card. Even though he hadn't paid the bill yet, he had already had that sin imputed to his account and he was headed on his way to pay the bill. And he didn't punish her and he didn't judge her for what she had done. Man, Jesus didn't impute people's sins unto him. He didn't hold their sins against them. And it says that he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. This is what God called ministers to preach, is that the battle is over. God's not angry at you anymore. God's not holding your sins against you. You're reconciled unto God. We're supposed to be preaching the good news, the nearly too good to be true news of the gospel. And yet the average church today is the number one place of guilt and condemnation on the face of the earth. Because they're living under the old covenant. It says in the next verse, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. We are an ambassador. Did you know if you were an ambassador for the United States, and if they sent you over to some foreign country, you don't sit there and represent yourself, and you don't tell them what you think, and you don't stand there and give your opinion, you are a representative of the government that sent you. And if they asked you a question, you'd say, well, let me check. And you would call and find out. And then you would represent the position of the United States. We are supposed to be ambassadors for the Lord. We're supposed to be accurately representing Him. How did Jesus represent God? Jesus was a perfect ambassador. And Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I see my Father do it. People today are representing God incorrectly and saying, if America doesn't repent, the wrath of God is just about to fall. He's about to pour out his wrath on the United States. You know what that is? I'm saying this with respect because I've got people who disagree with me on this who I love and I know that they're good people. But you know what that is? It's a slap in the face of Jesus. It's saying that Jesus didn't pay it all, that you're going to have to pay it. I'm telling you, Jesus paid for all of our sins. God is not ticked off at the sins of the world. The only thing that God is dealing with now is whether or not you accept Jesus as your Savior. That's what it says over in John chapter 16, verse 8. It says, he, when the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then in verse 9, of sin because they believe not on me. The Lord, Holy Spirit isn't reproving people of being an adulterer and a liar and a thief and all of these things. You know what He's reproving people over? Is the sin of rejecting Jesus. 
That usually goes over about like that. I got another tape set entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit that will explain nothing but what I said right there. And I tell you, that's powerful. But the issue isn't these individual things we do. It's all about whether or not you've accepted Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is convicting people of. The only thing that's going to send people to hell is not being a homosexual, a liar, a thief, or something else. It's going to be rejecting Jesus. All homosexuals have had their sins paid for. All liars have had their sins paid for. If those people go to hell, they're going to go to hell with their sins paid for. The reason they would go to hell is because they didn't accept the payment for that sin. They rejected Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what you've done with Jesus. If you accept Jesus, then everything I was preaching this morning comes to pass. You become a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You are now reconciled unto God. All of your sin was imputed unto Jesus. And you can stand in the presence of God in the Spirit, righteous and truly holy. Because of what Jesus did. Now that's the gospel. But you know what? There's a, there's a lot of people that believe, well, I have to make Jesus my Lord and accept that forgiveness, but then I also have to live holy and do all of these things to be accepted with God. And there's people, there's probably people in this room tonight that are mad at me because of some of the things that I've said because you are looking on the external part of me and thinking that I'm proclaiming that in my natural self, in the physical realm, that I'm worthy and holy. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in the spirit, I'm a brand new person and I'm clean and I'm pure and I'm able to stand in the very presence of God, holy and without blame because of what Jesus did. And I tell you, Old Testament saints didn't have that ability. They weren't new people. It was impossible to be born again before Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so they couldn't have this relationship. And therefore, there was a war and there was enmity between God and man. But in the new covenant, all of that has passed away. And we are supposed to be his ambassadors telling the world this nearly too good to be true news about the grace and the mercy of God. And I tell you, the body of Christ has not been representing him. We've represented him the way Moses did. Somebody says, well, Moses is pretty good. Well, for the time, it was better than what they had, which was lawlessness. But you know what? Moses would be rebuked today if he was here preaching the Ten Commandments. Somebody would say, oh, no way. Well, let let me just use an example. Over in 1st... Uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 is an example of Elijah, a prophet of God, who the king Ahaziah had hurt himself. He had some kind of an infection or something. And rather than going to the God of Israel, he sent his servants to the God of Beelzebub to inquire of Beelzebub whether he would recover from his sickness. And God told Elijah that he had done this. And so Elijah went and intercepted the messengers as they were on their way to the God of Ekron. And he said, is there because there's not a God in Israel that you've sent to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? He says, you go back and tell your master that because he's done this thing, he's going to die. He'll never get off of the bed that he's laying on. Judgment, punishment. And so the messengers went back and Ahaziah said, why are you returned so soon? He knew that they didn't have time to go there and be back. And they said, there was a man that menaced, us and he delivered, they delivered the message of Elijah. And he said, what kind of man was he? And they said, he was a hairy man and wearing a girdle of leather about his loins. And he says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Apparently, Elijah was quite the fashion statement. I mean, people could (laughs) recognize him. I've read some commentaries that they believe that he had a beard that was all the way down to the ground. And uh, so anyway, Elijah, he was very noticeable who it was. And Ahaziah feared Elijah. That's the reason he didn't send to Elijah to inquire of God in the first place because Elijah had prophesied the death of Ahaziah's father, Ahab. Ahab killed Jeroboam. I mean, not Jeroboam, uh, Naboth because he wanted his vineyard and his wife Jezebel conspired and killed this righteous man. And then Ahab went down and took control of his vineyard. And while he was walking through the vineyard, Elijah was standing there. He turned the corner and here was Elijah. 
And Elijah said, because you've done this thing, the dogs are going to lick your blood in the exact place that they licked the blood of Naboth. And it turned out that Ahab was in a battle, got wounded and died. And they took his chariot back to wash it in the field of Naboth, the vineyard, and the dogs licked his blood in the exact spot where Naboth had died. And Elijah also prophesied and said, because uh, Jezebel has done this thing, the dogs are going to eat Jezebel. Now that hadn't come to pass in 2 Kings chapter 1, but shortly after that, when Jehu became the king and replaced Ahaziah, then uh, that came to pass. Jehu came into the city and Jezebel painted her face and looked out a window and, and criticized Jehu. And Jehu said, who's on the Lord's side? And the guy stuck his head out the window and he says, I am. And he says, cast that wicked woman down. And they threw her out of this story and she landed on the pavement and Jehu rode his chariot back and forth across her and crushed her. And then he went in and sat down and started eating. And while he was eating, he says, you know, she was a king's daughter. Send some men out there to bury her. And when they got out there, all that was left was the skull, the palms of her hands, and the bottom part of her feet. The dogs had eaten her exactly like Elijah had said. This is that Elijah, and this is the reason that Ahad, Ahaziah didn't send to Elijah to get uh, a word from God. He was afraid. So when he heard about Elijah, all of this stuff came up about, you know, you're the one that killed my dad. You prophesied all of these things. So he sent his soldiers out against Elijah. And uh, first of all, there was a man that went out with 50 soldiers. And he said, oh, thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And Elijah said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And boom, the fire of God fell and killed 51 men. So Ahaziah sent another captain out there with another 50 men. And they came out and they said, oh, thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And he said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire fell from heaven and killed another 51 men, a total of 102 men. And finally, the third captain came out and he said, oh, thou man of God. He says, have mercy on me. I'm just obeying the king. He said, don't kill me. And you know what? Elijah prayed and the Lord told him to go with the guy. And he went with the guy. He spoke to Ahaz and he's Ahaziah and he says, you will die just like I said. And the Lord protected him and nothing was wrong. You know what? He didn't have to kill those 102 men. And yet, under that old covenant, God allowed this. And it says in verse 12, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 12, I believe it is, it was the fire of God that fell. It wasn't somehow or another Elijah conjured up and used some natural thing or demonic force. This was the fire of God. It was the judgment of God that fell. And it fell really for no reason because ultimately he went with the people and he was protected. He didn't have to do that. In the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, beginning in verse 51, I think it is, Jesus came to the city of Samaria and the Samaritans had already accepted him as Jesus. He ministered to the woman at the well and the entire city of Samaria turned and recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But later he was coming through that area again and because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem, which means that he was on his way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans hated the Jews. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. If you know much about the Bible, that's pretty obvious in the New Testament. And because he was going to go down and worship with the hypocrites in Jerusalem, that's the way the Samaritans thought about it, they, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem, they didn't even let him enter into their town. These were people that had already accepted him as the Messiah, had recognized him as being the Christ. But when they saw that he was associating with those hypocritical Jews, which was a religious and a racial prejudice, they refused to allow him into their town. And you know how Jesus' disciples responded? They said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down out of heaven and consume them the way that Elijah did? And let me say that, you know what? They had a justification for it. This was a first-class rejection of the Messiah. They were worthy of punishment, whereas those soldiers were just doing what they were told and it wasn't necessary over in 2 Kings chapter 1. And how did Jesus respond? 
Jesus turned around and he rebuked his disciples and he says, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives but to save them. And he just left them alone and went to another place. Let me say this, that if Elijah would have been present during Jesus' earthly ministry and if he tried to call fire down out of heaven, Jesus would have rebuked him. It was appropriate back then, but it isn't appropriate in the New Testament. If Moses commanded the earth to open up and swallow all of those idolaters alive into the earth, it was appropriate in Moses' time, but Jesus would have rebuked Moses for doing that. Jesus did not come to condemn man, but that the world through him might be saved. There's a difference. And it's amazing how people don't see this difference. They think that the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is one blank page. And they just run it all together. I'm telling you, there is a world of difference. Praise God for Jesus. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and God isn't angry at you anymore. And I know some of you that have been brought up and conditioned under this fear. The reason you serve God is because you're fearful that you're going to be judged. When I start talking about this love and that God is just operating towards you in love and that all of your blame has been placed upon Jesus and there isn't any wrath coming upon you, then immediately some of you think, well, what's the reason for serving God then? Because the only purpose you've ever had for serving God was fear that He was going to get you if you didn't do it. And when you remove fear, all of a sudden you say, well, what's to keep a person living holy? How about love? If you could understand the depths to which Jesus paid for your sins, if you ever saw that, I guarantee you, it would constrain you is what Paul said. Matter of fact, right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's in verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, not the fear of judgment, the fear of punishment. It's the love of Christ constrained them. If you ever understand how much God loves you, you'll serve God more through love than you ever did through fear. If the only reason a person is serving God is because they're afraid that God's going to get them if they don't do it, the Bible says fear has torment. There's a lot of people that their relationship with God is tormenting because it's based on fear. It's based on that if I don't do what's right, God's going to get me. And so they will pray, but they're praying to appease an angry God, to keep God from being upset at them. But their whole thought the whole time is they're doing it motivated out of fear. And fear has torment. But you know what? If you ever understand how much God loves you, you'll go to serving God out of love. And man, love has no torment. Love has no fear in it. Perfect love will cast out fear. And you'll find out that you'll have a wonderful relationship and you'll serve God more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before if you go to understanding how much God loves you. It's amazing to me how religious people are afraid that if you take fear away and if you don't scare the devil out of people that people are going to go live in sin. Well, let me just ask you this. How well has all of our condemnation and fear motivation been doing? I guarantee you our society is going south in a hurry and the church standard of holiness has gone in the toilet. You know why? Because fear has torment and people recognize that all of this condemnation is not good. Did you know if a person goes into a mental institution, I don't know if any of you have ever visited somebody in a mental institution, but if you're a preacher and if a person goes into a mental institution... You have to get an act of Congress to go in and see them. They do not want preachers to come visit anybody because they recognize the source of most guilt and condemnation is religion. The first thing they'll do in a mental institution is take a Bible away from a person and they will try and cut off all religion because they recognize that's where their sense of condemnation and self-hatred is coming from. It's a sad testimony for the church. But that's true. And it is damaging when you, when you do all of these things and you just constantly feel a sense of unworthiness, ungodliness. You know, I was raised that you sin every day, whether you know it or not. You just constantly sin. 
I used to pray and ask God to forgive me for everything I did and everything I didn't even know that I did. I'd ask forgiveness for things that I didn't even know of. I heard a preacher one time who got up at the 8 o'clock a.m. service and he started his sermon by saying, how many of you have sinned this morning? And every person in the church raised their hand. And his wife was sitting on the front row and he says, what have you done? He says, it's only 8 o'clock. What have you done? I want to know what you've done. And she says, well, I can't think of anything, but I know I sin all of the time. That is a sin consciousness, which the Bible says we shouldn't have. You know what? You, you do a lot of righteous things every day, but we don't think about that. Instead, we just go around with a sense of, oh, I know I'm unworthy and I'm unrighteous. Instead, we ought to go around convicted of being the righteousness of God. That's what it says in John 16, 10. Let me share this passage with you out of Hebrews chapter 10. These are some of the verses I skipped over this morning because I knew I'd preach on them if I, if I read them. But in Hebrews, it's talking about these same things, talking about how we're redeemed. We got a new covenant. It makes a major point of saying that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God that the world has ever seen. It supersedes the old covenant and it talks about that Jesus has a better priesthood Therefore, the Old Testament Levitical priesthood is done away because Jesus wasn't a priest of the, uh, after the order of Levi, but rather he was after the order of Melchizedek. Everything was changed. If the priesthood is changed, then the whole legal system has to change because that was the central point of it. So this is what um, Hebrews has been saying up until this time, talking about that we shouldn't have any consciousness of sin. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? There's a question mark there. The Old Testament sacrifices were only a shadow. They weren't the real thing. They were to illustrate and paint a picture you know, if you could imagine right now, let's say that this was the edge of a building right here. And if I was standing around here and if you were on that other side, but this building blocked your view of me. And if there was a light behind me, if you could see my shadow, that shadow would give you information about me. It would tell you whether I'm standing still, whether I'm jumping up and down, whether I'm moving forward, whether I'm moving away from you. You could tell some things by looking at that shadow. The shadow, if you couldn't see me, would be beneficial to you to give you an instruction or some insight of what I was doing. But once I walk around the corner of the building and I'm in open sight, you'd be crazy to run up and fall down and kiss my shadow or hug my shadow. Man, if you got me, why would you hug my shadow instead of hugging me? Well, the Old Testament was a shadow. It says this exact same thing over in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that all of the meat and drink offerings, the uh, dietary laws, and the Sabbath day were a shadow of things to come. But they weren't the reality. And did you know what? There's still Christians today that are still in the bondage to the Sabbath. They're still going by Old Testament scriptures concerning the Sabbath. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Sabbath is a relationship with God. It's not a day to be observed. It was strictly enforced in the Old Testament. People were punished and killed for disobeying the Sabbath. But now we've got a brand new relationship. I've got a tape entitled Our Sabbath Rest that will explain that in more detail. But that's what this is talking about. The Old Testament law was only a shadow. Those sacrifices, when they killed those animals, that was only a picture of what Jesus was going to do. It wasn't the real thing. The blood of bulls and goats never saved anybody. It never forgave any sins. It was only a picture, a shadow of something. And they had to offer them continually, over and over. Every time you sinned, you had to bring a sacrifice. And there was a day called the Day of Atonement every year where you just made atonement for all of the sins that you had done, all of the sins that you'd forgotten. It just covered everything. Those were pictures of something. But in Hebrews chapter 9, I wish I had time, five different times it says in Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus threw one offering 
One offering dealt with your sin forever. One offering in Hebrews 10.10 sanctified you forever. One offering in Hebrews 10.14 perfected you forever. It's making a contrast between the way it was done in the old covenant and the way it's done in the new covenant. In the new covenant, one encounter with Jesus forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even future tense sin. Sin is not even an issue between you and God today, contrary to what many people are preaching. Somebody says, so you're just encouraging sin. I just got canceled off of a whole series of radio stations because they said, you're encouraging people to sin. And I talked to the manager and tried to explain it, but he didn't get it. I'm not encouraging sin. You know, I'm glad God called me to preach grace. Because if I would have been uh, one of these guys that was just terrible, liar, stealer, drunk, dope addict, running around with different women besides my wife and doing all of this, people would have looked at this message and said, well, I know why you preach this. This is just your way of excusing what you're doing. But you know what? I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought about living. I have lived holy, 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 And I am not preaching this to indulge some carnal lifestyle. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches us in Titus chapter 2 verse 12 that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand the grace and the mercy of God, it doesn't cause you to live in sin. It'll cause you to live free from sin. It says that in Romans chapter 6. It says we are free from sin knowing this, talking about the grace of God. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace. Romans chapter 6, I believe that's verse 15. If you are under law, then sin is having dominion over you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 56 says that the law strengthened sin. The law actually strengthened sin in your life. Romans chapter 7 says that the commandment made sin come alive and revive. The law, preaching on law, punishment, wrath, God's going to get you if you don't do what's right. It'll actually make you lust for the very thing that God told you not to do. You know, I'm going to come back to this verse in just a second. But let me just give you, this is an overview that might help some of you to understand this. You know, one of the reasons God gave the law is because people were comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, which the Bible says is not wise. You can see this in the fourth chapter of Genesis. Uh, Cain killed Abel, and instead of God killing him, God gave him mercy and protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. God started ministering in mercy. It was until the law, 2,000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve is when God started punishing people and imputing people's sins unto them. But for the first 2,000 years, Romans 5.13 says, Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, not put on your account, until the commandment came. And so for the first 2,000 years, generally God was dealing in mercy with the human race. He didn't punish Cain and kill him. He gave mercy to the first murderer on the face of the earth. In contrast with that, when the law came, the very first person to break the law is a person who broke the Sabbath law and went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day so that he could make a fire and cook something to eat. And that was considered work. And so when this guy broke the law, they told Moses, Moses put him in jail basically until they could hear the word of the Lord. And an audible voice from God came saying, kill him, stone him to death, make an example out of him. The first person who broke the law picked up sticks to make a fire. He got killed. The first murderer on the face of the earth got protected and had a mark put in his forehead so that God would protect him. Can you tell there's a difference between the law and grace? But what happened when God didn't punish the first murderer? Well, Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, came along and he killed a man and he was more justified. He did it in self-defense. And so he told his two wives, he says, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is surely going to be avenged seventy and sevenfold. God didn't say that. That was Lamech saying that. Lamech was basically saying, Cain got by with murder and mine is more justified than him, so I know I'm going to get by with murder. And people begin to compare themselves among themselves. And because somebody didn't drop over dead, 
they think, well, you know what, that sin must not be so bad. And they begin to lose their perspective on what sin was. And they begin to think that because they weren't as bad as somebody else, that they were okay and that God was going to accept them. And so the Lord had to remove this deception from people. So there's a number of things that the law did, but one of those things is for those people who thought, you know what, I'm really a good person and I've overcome all of these things and I don't have a sin nature anymore and I I believe I'm changed. God needed to bring them out of their deception. So you know what he did? He says, thou shalt not. And all of a sudden, sin revived and came alive on the inside of you. It says the law was the strength of sin. You lust for the very thing that you're commanded not to have. You know, if you don't like chocolate, I don't know how you live, but if you didn't like chocolate, (laughs) let's just say that you didn't even like chocolate. But if I said, you know what? You can have a million dollars one year from today if you will not eat chocolate, not think chocolate, not desire chocolate. And if I had the ability to get on the inside of you and tell whether you ever thought about chocolate or desired chocolate, even if you didn't like chocolate, if I dangled something in front of you, but then put a law with it, thou shalt not, I guarantee you, you'd go to thinking about chocolate just because I commanded you not to do it. There's something on the inside of you that when somebody says, thou shalt not, something says, bless God, I shall. Amen. (laughs) God made us not to be ruled by laws and commandments. He didn't give those to Adam and Eve. And there's something inside of every person that resists being told you can't do something. We call it freedom, but really that's just usually applied to physical, natural things, but it applies even more to spiritual things and morality issues. There's something on the inside of you that resents being told what to do. If you don't believe it, you know, when I was a kid, all you had to do to get somebody to do something was just call them, you're a sissy. You can't do it. All you had to do was tell somebody you can't do it. And even though they knew they shouldn't do it, even though they knew this was stupid, if you told them they can't do it, they were probably going to do it. And in Texas, all you had to do was say, I double dog dare you. And if you gave somebody a double dog dare, they had to do it. I remember one time trying to get a kid to walk across this pole across the creek. I wouldn't do it, but I dared him. And he didn't want to do it, but I dared him. And you know what? He did it because I said, thou shalt not do it. All of a sudden, something rose up. See, God knew this. And so one of the reasons that he gave the law wasn't to get you to keep it because you can't keep the law. One of the reasons he gave it was for those who were thinking, oh, I'm really wonderful and I'm not a sinner anymore and I've overcome and I'm just so awesome. God's bound to love me. You know what? When God said, thou shalt not, all of that sin rose up on the inside of you. Yourself, your rebellion rose up saying, how dare somebody. And you'll lust for the very thing that you're told not to have. If you preach against adultery in your church, you'll have a rash of adultery happen. It's true. I know some of you don't agree with that, but I've seen it over and over and over and over and over and over. And if you listen to a preacher, like for instance, Jimmy Swaggart, if those of you that are old enough in the Lord to remember, Jimmy Swaggart was down on homosexuality and adultery and immorality. And I mean, he would scream till his juggler vein would stand out and he'd get red in the face. I mean, just overly zealous against it. You know why he was so angry? Because he was doing it. He was fighting against it, trying to overcome it in himself. That's not the way to get people free. The way to get people free, you know, it's like if I tell you to think of a banana. Everybody right now sees thinking of a banana. (laughs) But now I say, thou shalt not think of a banana. Don't think of a banana. If you think of a banana, and if that's all I did was talk about, don't think about a banana, don't talk about a banana. If that's all I did, you'd be banana conscious. <laughs> that's all you'd think about is about a banana. You can't, you can't resist thoughts and throw them out by rebuking them. You know what you have to do with thoughts? You have to replace thoughts with thoughts. If I said, now think about an apple. 
And if I begin to start describing an apple and talking about an apple and talking about, you know, whether it's a red or a green apple or all of these things, and if I started talking about apples, it wouldn't be very long until all of a sudden you'd forgotten a banana because you replaced those thoughts. That's the way you have to overcome things in your life. But the law didn't do that. The law made this sin come alive. You know, I have a, a tape series out there on this, and I actually had a preacher one time who was listening to my tape on this, and he all of a sudden got revelation, and he saw this. And he was looking out the uh, study window of his um, study, looking at his son play with some of the neighborhood kids in the backyard, and he thought he'd just go test this. So he walked out to the back door, and he opened up the back door, and he called all the kids up there, and he says, you know, y'all have been playing great, but whatever you do, thou shalt not spit on this flower. And he walked over and pointed to this flower right underneath the window of his study. And then he walked back in the house, and he said he walked around and looked out there, and he said those kids had played for an hour or two, and none of them had even noticed that this flower existed. But as soon as he said, thou shalt not spit on this flower, he said half of those kids walked right over and spit on that flower. (laughs) And the other half stood there with their mouth, just salivating, wished that they could spit. They wished they had enough nerve to spit on it. Nobody even knew that the flower was there until somebody says, thou shalt not. You know, I was running a race one time, a six-mile race, 6.2-mile race, 10K race, and I was, I'd put in my best time. I'd turned a brand-new record, personal record for me, and I was just a quarter of a mile from the finish line, but I had just given it all I had. I didn't have any more. And a guy started to pass me, and anybody who knows me, I'm a competitor. <laughs> my daddy taught me that second place is first loser. And you know what? I'm not a sore loser. I don't get, I don't pout about it, but I've never thrown a game of anything in my life. I play to win. And I'm a competitor. So this guy started to pass me and he could tell that I gave it a little extra oomph and I tried to keep up with him, but I just was wasted. I didn't have anything left. And so this guy got about a yard or two in front of me and he looked back over his shoulder and he, real sarcastic, he says, you could do better than that. And I mean, it's like the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) I never saw that show, but I heard about it. And I I mean, my adrenaline started flowing and all of a sudden, shoom, I passed that guy up and I beat him nearly as far as from here to the back of the auditorium at the end of that race. And when I crossed the finish line, I just passed out. I don't know where that energy came from. But it's this same principle. Somebody says, thou shalt not, you can't do this. Something on the inside of you is going to rise up and prove them wrong. And God knew our human nature. And this is one reason that he gave the commands. Not so that you could keep them. Nobody can ever keep all of the commands. Those of you who think that you can, you don't even know, you don't have a clue what the commands of God were. There were thousands and thousands of commands, even down to the kind of garments you wore. If you're wearing polyester and cotton tonight, you broke a law. Man, they're just... Why did God give all of these commands? So that those of you that thought, I'm a pretty good person, I don't need God, would recognize, "Uh uh-oh, Man, God said, thou shalt not do this. This is the very thing I love to do. And you know what? It'd make you recognize you're a sinner and it'd make you come to God for salvation. So it's the greatest deception that the devil has ever put across to make people think that God gave the law so that if you would keep it, you could earn relationship with God. That was not the purpose of the law. The law was given for condemnation to kill you, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Man, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 10. It says in verse 1 again, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? If the sacrifice could have worked, one sacrifice would have done it forever. But they couldn't work. That's the reason they had to repeat them. And sad to say, most Christians haven't understood this. And so they think, just like the Old Testament sacrifices were offered over and over and over, every time you sinned, you had to bring a sacrifice. And then you had to have a day of atonement where you just asked forgiveness for all of the things that you didn't even know that you'd done. 
Most New Testament Christians are still living by that same standard. It's wrong. It's saying that that's, that's the Old Testament. That's not the way it is in the New Covenant. It says if they could have worked, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't work because they were only pictures, but the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus could work. It did work. And one offering sanctified and perfected us forever. That's the context of all of these verses. And then it goes on to say in verse 2, it says, Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. If the Old Testament sacrifices could have worked, you know what? You wouldn't have ever been sin conscious again. You wouldn't have even thought about your unworthiness. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't, but the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus did work. And you know, if we understood these things properly, we should not even have a consciousness of sin. There's not one out of a million Christians that are even approaching that. Most of us are so sin conscious. The first thing you do when you enter in the presence of God, oh God, forgive us of all the things we've done. We come before you so humbly. Please don't get us. You think that if you'll mention them real quick, God won't judge you. You got to mention them before God mentions them. Coming in, dragging all of your sins. That's not what these scriptures are teaching. Brothers and sisters, we've misunderstood the purpose of the Old Testament law. We've under, misunderstood the duration of the Old Testament law. Most Christians still think that we're living by the law today. Somebody's thinking, so you just think we ought to forsake the Ten Commandments? No, they're wonderful. But you can't live up to them. But it'll still tell you what's right and wrong. You know what? Now, I don't keep a law so that God will be pleased with me. God is pleased with me through what Jesus did. But I still, now because God loves me, I want to please Him. And so I go back and I find out what it was that He wanted me to do. And I found out that having other gods before Him doesn't please Him, and so I don't do it. I found out that lying doesn't please Him, so I don't do it. I found out that adultery doesn't please Him, so I don't do it. But I don't do any of those things perfectly. And when I fail in some area, I just say, thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for mercy and thank you that I'm righteous in your sight because of what Jesus did and not because of what I've done. Man, that's good news. Let me use this one last example. That when they brought a sacrifice before the priest in the Old Testament... There's, there's lots of information, lots of instructions about how that the priest had to examine the sacrifice and it had to be without blemish. It couldn't, be, it couldn't have any blemish. If you offered a sacrifice with any spot in it, then your sacrifice wouldn't be accepted. So when a person brought a sacrifice, when they brought a lamb to the priest the priest would take that lamb and examine it from the head to the back end and they would look at it and make sure that there was no blemish in it and then they would offer that sacrifice. But think about this. This is really powerful if you can get this. The priest didn't examine the person who brought the sacrifice to see if they were without blemish. The priest didn't ask you, now have you been praying? Have you done everything right? Are you really holy? Have you been doing this? No, you brought the sacrifice to substitute for you. And the priest examined the sacrifice, not the sacrificer. And Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. God looked at Jesus and God saw that Jesus was perfect. And God accepted the sacrifice because Jesus was perfect, not because you are perfect. And if you offer that sacrifice of Jesus and then allow the devil to come and the devil says, but you aren't holy, and you should point and say, but that's what my sacrifice is for. That's what the lamb is for. It's not according to how good I am. Everything ought to be pointed back towards Jesus. But most of us allow the devil to condemn us and we say, oh God, it's true. I overate today. I know you're probably going to let me die of cancer because I haven't done something right. And we accept all of this stuff instead of looking at Jesus and saying, praise God for a Savior. Praise God for a substitute. 
If you understand this properly, you know what? It takes all of the condemnation away from you and it just makes you... It's nearly too good to be true news. I had some people ask me today about, is there some, am, am I got some sin in my life that's keeping me from being healed? You know what? It's not sin in your life that keeps you from being healed. God loves you and, and releases healing based on, on what He's done for you. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're out there acting like a snake and just as mean as a snake and critical, you know what the Bible says in James 3.16, that where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. If you're living in strife and hatred, you are allowing Satan to come in. Every evil work, not just a few of them, everyone. If you're an angry person that's in bitterness, God's not going to hold back from you because God has imputed all of your sins unto Jesus and He loves you. And He's wanting to release His power in your life. But Satan will hinder your prayers if you are living in sin. So as much as you can, live holy. Don't give Satan a free shot at you. Don't give him inroad into your life. Live as holy as you possibly can. But don't ever relate God's love to you based on your holiness. Recognize that, man, you have a sacrifice and God is accepting you based on that. And if you find yourself falling short, just turn from it and say, God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a Savior. And if you've understood what I've talked about this weekend, you know what, this will propel you a long ways in understanding the love of God. This will help you to understand God in a way that you've never understood Him before. There's a reason that most people don't have a working experience of God's love, and it's because of all of the junk that we're believing. Wrong thinking produces wrong believing. And we got wrong thinking. We got wrong believing. And brothers and sisters, you're going to have to renew your mind. You know, that's why we've had these pastors stand up. That's why we have out there on our pastoral relation table a list of all of the pastors that have come to these meetings. Because I know that there's some of you that, man, this has just stirred you up to such a degree, like, man, where do we go now? We've been hearing that sin consciousness and all this stuff preached, where do we go? Well, you know what? You ought to check out some of these churches that have supported this meeting because I guarantee you there's not a lot of pastors that will come listen to the things I'm saying. These that have come and supported this meeting, that's a good place to start. But you know, this isn't being spoken very often, not very much. And that's the reason that the body of Christ is in the situation it's in today is because we aren't hearing the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. Man, if you'd receive these truths, I guarantee you, if this affects you half as much as it affects me, you're going to be one happy camper. I haven't been depressed in 39 years. I haven't been defeated. I had not been discouraged. And I've had lots of bad, discouraging, negative things happen to me. But you know what? These truths about God's love for me have kept me going through thick and thin. And I can testify that it'll work for you. This will change your life if you get hold of it. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let me ask again if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus personally. What a great message to get saved.